This is Chris. Welcome to episode six of Generation X Lapsed. We are uh, at the halfway point. Uh, didn't think it would uh, go quite this quickly. It felt like this was going to be a pretty drawn-out undertaking. And hey, I mean, I can only speak for myself. Uh, I'm actually kind of surprised at how breezy this is going. Uh, I apologize if the listening is a bit of a drag. You just, uh, you just never know. But uh, let's get into it here. This is Generation X Volume Two, Number Six. This had a November 2017 cover date, written by Christina Strain, with art by Eric Coda, colors by Felipe Sobreiro, or Sobreiro, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, the edits Robinson Shan, Panizia, and Alonzo, cover price $4. This one went on sale September 6 of 2017. As always, we start with our single-page spread of roll call and cred here. The characters we got are Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. Now we open at the Xavier Institute for Journalism, Agrotourism, and Windsurfing, where our not-yet-Generation-X-named kids yet are attending a class of Professor Dupe. Now, I don't have a uh, Dupe to English translator handy, and even if I did... I doubt it would be worth it to translate this entire page of dupe text. Um, from the kid's reactions, though, it would seem as though rather than teaching, he's complaining about being lonely and horny. <clears throat> Bling suggests he try seeking out mutant fetishists on Tinder. And I tell you what, this is one of those instances where I'm actually happy to be too old to understand something. <laughs> it's... Not often I feel refreshed in that way, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased not to, not to get this. Now Trevor, iBoy, suggests that the uh, conversation is making him feel uncomfortable. Nature Girl thinks Dupe is hot. Okay. Uh, Quentin reminds us that Dupe is a flying potato because, well, I guess he is. Now while QQ exaggeratedly stretches because he's very, very bored, Nathaniel notices that he's wearing a light blue bracelet with skulls on it. He then turns to Ben Deeds and notices that he, too, has that same bracelet, and also that he looks quite exhausted. And so Nate wads up some paper and chucks it at Quentin's head to ask what's up with the cuffs. Quentin more or less tells him to mind his own business. To which, Nate, the kid who, for the past half-dozen issues, has refused to use his powers, decides it's time to remove his glove and touch the back of Quentin's disgusting, oily neck. 
Now, via his odd take on chrono-skimming, Nate is able to deduce that Quentin has been keeping deeds out all hours of the night, hanging and banging around New York City. We see them graffiti-tagging a wall, because I guess that's what the cool kids do. Uh, Kitty Pride was here. Pride spelled P-R-I-D-E and was, you know, W-U-Z. Because I, I guess misspellings are cool, and I would assume that cool is with a K. Now, they sing karaoke like a couple of real mad lads. Um, They break into a mansion and swim in a swanky pool. They also do some bar hopping so Quentin can lament the fact that the girl he loves doesn't love him back. Now, all throughout this entire montage, Ben looks about as excited as a uh, coma victim. Now, Quentin is none too pleased by this turn of events, and even asks Nate why he's going against his own established continuity, you know, using his powers without any consent. I mean, we don't know Nate all that well, but this is definitely out of character from what little we do know. Nate tells QQ that he asked himself what Quentin might do in the situation, and he just did that. I guess whatever helps you sleep at night, pal. Um, then, in our action portion of the issue, Ben Deeds falls asleep while jotting down notes and nearly takes his own eye out with the eraser end of his pencil. Like, really, that is the high action for this issue, a kid dopily dozing into the nub end of his pencil. Now, after class, Nate and Deeds watches Quentin playfully jogs up to the object of his affection. It's Aidy Onkonkwo, Oya, one of the Hope Summers' five lights, and cast member of the previous Generation book, Generation Hope which, it's been like a decade, but I remember quite enjoying it while it lasted. Anyway, Quentin asks her out for some sushi. But, since he's Quentin Quire, ID says no. Then, some X-Men wallpaper in the form of Surge, Dust, and Pixie holler over to ID to rescue her from her pink-haired pursuer, and so she leaves with them to go to class. Quentin hides his disappointment and embarrassment by turning on a dime and telling old Ben Deeds that he's got a big night planned for them tonight. Deeds tries to back out, but Quentin is persistent, and also Deeds is kind of, um, submissive, I guess? I don't know. And so, seeing his buddy needs a bailout, Nate tells Quentin that he and Mr. Deeds already have plans for the evening. They're going to watch a pretentious indie flick. Quentin suggests that those plans are lame. And I, once again, find myself agreeing with him. Nate then turns it on QQ, and he asks what better plans he has for the three of them that night. And so, Quentin begrudgingly accepts that if he wants deeds, he's going to have to take Carver, too. Now, the scene shifts over to Central Park. Where else? And Jubilee and Chamber are out trying to hunt down M-Plate. Jubilee says she'd rather be in bed, which is a pretty big change in tone from how we wrapped up an issue or two ago with her vowing to kick Monet's ass. She and Jono talk a bit about their old friend and what they might have to do if and when they find her. Jono says they got to take her down. No hesitation. Call Me Jubes asks if that'll be the way they take her down if she ever loses control over her vampirism. Jono tells her to cool her jets, and uh, we're reminded here that Jubilee has to wear a giant amulet in order to control her urges, which I don't think I've ever seen before. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's new. Maybe it's been established. I couldn't tell you. This conversation is thankfully interrupted by a mugger because lest we forget, we're in Central Park. Though, I mean, how could we? We haven't really been anywhere else for this entire volume. 
Now, Jono and Jubilee beat up, beat them up real good here and then decide to spend the rest of their evening mugger hunting rather than to, you know, search for the super powerful mutant with mouths on her hands like they were planning initially. Uh, okay, sounds good to me. We jump back to the boys here and we join them at a villain-filled auction house. We see such characters as Hammerhead, Typhoid Mary, Exterminatrix, I think Slenderman's in here. A lot of bad guys, what I'm trying to say. Ben Deeds ain't so sure that this is the best idea. And Quentin says, hey, you know, I offered karaoke and you passed, so this was plan B. Then, Cade Kilgore, the, the Hellfire Tot, enters the scene. And it's worth noting, I was trying to describe how Cade is drawn here. Uh, we have a different artist today, and it's, uh, it's a little bit different. And I couldn't quite figure out the right term to use. And then I read the next panel where Nate asks, uh, who's the fetus? And yeah, that's it. Cade Kilgore looks kind of like a giant fetus. Yeah, that's, hey, why not? Kilgore approaches Quentin to ask what he's doing here and point out what an interesting entourage he has. Quentin introduces Nathaniel as his manservant, and Benji, who is currently half-morphed to look just like Quentin, as his boyfriend. Now, Cade is quite surprised by this and excuses himself to go bid. Quentin takes this to mean that Kilgore is a homophobe, but they really didn't do all that much to derive that suggestion. I mean, he doesn't look disgusted, he didn't make any derogatory or passive-aggressive comments, he basically just excused himself to do the thing he was at the auction house to do in the first place. Now, as Cade walks away, he tells the security detail that he feels like Choir is lying and he wants eyes on him all evening. So yeah, not really so much a homophobe, just a kid who distrusts Quentin, is all. So let's head to the uh, bidding bits here. Now, after Exterminatrix wins something or another for the hefty sum of 260 grand, uh, the next item up for bids is a tube of Kilgore Industries Nano Sentinels. And uh, if you don't know what those are, I'll, I'll read you a quote here. They're designed to seek and destroy a mutant from the inside out. All you have to do is deploy them, release them into the wind, or dump them into a local water supply. The choice is yours. And so the bidding opens at five. Not $5, not $5,000, not even $5 million, but five hits. You know, murders. Uh, the bidding rapidly rises to ten hits, and it's ultimately won by... Oh, the Fenris twins. Oh, boy. Mm. Oh, that's gonna, that's gonna, you know, put some butts in the seats here. Uh, Quentin and Nate are panicked and wonder what they're gonna be able to do, because, I mean... There's going to be some killing going on. To which Benji calmly, coolly, and completely out of character suggests that they just let Fenris win the thing because the three of them are just going to steal it anyway. To be continued. So, what did we think about this halfway point issue? I guess wrapping up the first half with this issue. Uh, I do have a little bit of a Chris trivia for this one. Um, this was actually the last issue of Generation X that came to me uh, via real-time DCBS ordering of the title. Um, I don't know why I let it linger on so long. Uh, I must have just been going off like a saved pull list or something. Uh, sometimes I experiment with that on DCBS, like when I don't want to be tempted by other things that might be coming out that, uh, that you know, I know I won't read. And it's just like a curiosity buy. Sometimes I would just defer back to just using a pull list. And I'm sure I had... Some X books on it. It was just like, okay, order, make the same order again. 
and I'm guessing Generation X just uh, lingered for a little while there. And I've mentioned before what a difficult um, decision it was to drop all the X books back in, you know, late 2017, early 2018. Um, it was breaking a a 30-year habit at that point, and uh, just didn't feel right not to order. If there were X-Men books coming out and they weren't coming to my house, it just uh, it didn't feel right. So maybe, maybe it was a little bit of a hope that I would get back into it. Maybe it was just a hope that uh, one day down the line I'd have a stupid show <laughs> that would discuss this stuff. I don't know. But this was the last issue that I actually uh, ordered via DCBS, and this was the first time I ever took it out of the plastic and read it. Um, so what do we think? What do we think here? Um, I kind of I kind of dug it. I can't believe I'm saying this. Uh, I really thought that this was going to be a lot more painful. And I, maybe I was just in a different headspace back in 2017 than I am right now. Maybe I just want to like this more than I would have wanted to like it back then. I really can't say. I guess we all have our biases and we all have uh, our phases and moods. But uh, I thought this was pretty well done in that we are separating out the class here and we're learning bits and pieces about each member here rather than just you know clumping these kids together because... They're all the cast of the book, and we got to have them joined at the hip. Uh, I think that that does a great disservice to fleshing out any of these characters. And I got to assume, at least at the time uh, Christina Strain wrote this issue, they didn't know that this was only going to run 12 issues. They probably were hopeful that this was going to be an ongoing, at least until the next Marvel reboot, you know. So this was really just a bit of world building here, or I guess character building. Last issue, we had iBoy and Nature Girl have their little spotlight. We had Bling have a spotlight before that. And here we've, uh, you know, we're bringing our POV character and Nathaniel. Uh, we're bringing him out. We've got Ben Deeds here, who we don't know a whole heck of a lot about. The only one we really have some sort of like a lightning round to is Quentin Quire. But here we're seeing him in the context of impression management, if I can dig into my old uh, academic uh, bag of tricks here. He's controlling the way people perceive him, uh, not through his mutant abilities here, but by his behavior. I mean, we know that he is quite taken with Oya from uh, what we see here. I don't know if this is a continuation from anything that came before it. Uh, my memories of my latter days of X-Fandom before this are very cloudy. Um, so I don't know if this was something that was established or not. Either way, it doesn't matter. We we know what we're getting here. We see it in the scene. It was done quite well. And Quentin being Quentin won't, you know, isn't really interested in letting anybody see him sweat. So he turns on a dime and kind of overcompensates in the confidence department here, just being very domineering over Ben Deeds, who is a pretty weak fella, I guess. He's letting Quentin just do whatever he wants to do with him here. And from what uh, Nathaniel saw when he touched Quentin's disgusting, oily neck, we saw that uh, Morph was not having a good time with Quentin. He was basically just there because Quentin told him to be there. I don't quite understand how um, Ben had that weird burst of confidence at the end. He was just like, I don't know, felt we don't know much about the kid. But uh, it just felt very much uh, like a 180 on the character that we've seen. He's just been very submissive, very, uh, you know, go with the flow. And here he is saying, no, no, we're going to steal the uh, the canister away from Fenris. Uh, while Quentin, 
who, I mean, has always been portrayed as being overly confident, is uh, is nervous. And Nathaniel, I mean, Nathaniel's basically just there because he's our point of view character. But it just felt weird that uh, Benjamin would be the uh, the assertive voice at the end of it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it is development of his character. Hopefully we'll learn more. Again, I don't think this was ever meant to go just 12 issues. So I think we, th- I think the creators thought we were going to have a lot more time with these characters, and uh, this was just, you know, step one of uh, creating a character, creating a, uh, a pattern of behavior, and establishing just who these kids uh, really are here. Um, while on the subject of the ending here, um, or close to the ending, I suppose, Cade Kilgore as an evil homophobe was a, a bit, felt a bit forced. Um, he really didn't do anything to suggest that he that he had any sort of uh, bigoted, bigoted feelings like that. Um, all he did was excuse himself from a conversation. Uh, and, I mean, Quentin was was being very annoying at the time, right? He was being overly annoying. So uh, I really can't blame anybody from, for not wanting to be in his company at that point. I feel like there was certainly a message that Strain was trying to push here, but I think... You know, it, it reminds me of um, some of those old Green Lantern, Green Arrow stories from uh, Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams here, where where Hal and Ollie would discover that, like, the bigot was actually an evil alien overlord or something. <laughs> and uh, I feel like that does the story a great disservice here because bigots are real, right? You don't have to be a space alien or a supervillain to be a bigot. Here with Cade Kilgore, uh, we can accept that he's a supervillain. He's a no-good bastard. But, I mean, does that also mean that he's, you know, a bigot? Does it, it? I don't know that they're... I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibilities, of course, here, but he didn't do anything to express that sort of tone. Uh, and, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I just didn't see anything um, too out of the realm of him just wanting to leave Quentin's company, which, again, I can't blame the kid for. Uh, we got Jubilee and Jono here. Um, I feel like, and listeners of the main show will uh, recognize this little chestnut from my Excalibur conversations, but I feel like we missed an issue. Um, when we last left Jubilee and Jono, Jubilee was like full of P&V here, ready to just uh, put a whooping on Monet. And here she's like, oh man, I'd rather be in bed right now. It's like, that just feels weird and kind of undercuts the threat that M or M plate uh, poses to the team and to mutants and to whoever it's I don't know it felt it felt a little forced just to facilitate her you know wondering aloud what might happen if her vampirism takes over and uh, she goes nuts you know I, I it felt very unnecessary. Uh, I mean, she could still be full of P&V to find Monet and still have these thoughts and worries and concerns and still raise them to, jo- to Jono and still have the same conversation. So, I don't know. I don't know. It just feels very, um, like I said, it feels like we missed a scene where maybe they've been doing this for weeks and weeks and weeks and now she's just tired of it. But uh, we didn't get that scene. We didn't see those scenes and they didn't reflect back on those scenes. It's just a another night out and Jubilee would rather be in bed. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about the story. Um, we can focus a little bit on the art. You guys know me. I'm not, I'm not very comfortable talking about art. But uh, the art here is kind of evocative of what we saw last issue. In that, uh, and I think I compared that to like a big budget Hollywood movie trying its best to look like an independent film. 
you know, being a little quirky, a little bit off-center. That's kind of what we get here as well. Um, makes me feel like I'm reading a turn-of-the-century, like, Oni press book. Not a bad thing. You know, not a bad thing at all, but uh, doesn't really fit the tone of an X-Men book to me. Uh, and maybe that's just me. I, I can totally appreciate that just being me, but... I don't know, I'm used to a uh, cleaner look on the X-Books here, and this was uh, not that. wasn't bad, just uh, wasn't what I'm looking for when it comes to this sort of book. Now that is everything I got to say about this issue. Uh, if you would agree, disagree, have any comments or anything you'd like to tell me, please feel free to reach out. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could find me, I think, on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join in the conversation at our little Facebook group. It's 90s X-Men, and I think we just broke 50 members. So uh, thank you all for that. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere they aggregate noise and or sound. But... That'll do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for listening today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.